This is Truth Jihad Radio, questioning official stories since 2006. Please subscribe by way of the Substack button at truthjihad.com. Welcome to Truth Jihad Audio Visual, the radio and now video show that goes everywhere where uh, brave people are thinking outside the box and telling truths that the mainstream doesn't want you to hear. Uh, today, I'm honored to bring on a new Truth Jihad guest, Matthew Crawford. He's a mathematician, a statistician, and a real visionary. He puts out the Rounding the Earth newsletter, which is highly recommended, some of the most provocative writing on the internet today. So, hey, welcome, Matthew. Good to have you. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me. I uh, really enjoy your work. It, it kind of covers uh, a whole bunch of bases that aren't always uh, covered in one place. Um, that's for sure. In fact, it, I think you're covering probably 80, 90 percent, at least, of the issues that I've been covering for the last 15, 20 years, uh, with one exception, which, of course, I've been focused heavily on 9-11 truth. That's what pushed me into this alternative info world. Um, and I noticed you, you haven't done a huge amount on that. But other than that, especially in the COVID era, uh, we're, we're definitely barking up similar trees. I appreciate you bringing um, math, science, and humanities together, which is something that I've always uh, wanted to see more of ever since I was a humanities teacher. Uh, so where do we start here? I guess, boy, uh, you know, your, your COVID statistical work challenges orthodoxy. I just had a rabid defender of orthodoxy mm-hmm. on the show, Gordon Duff. Uh, he's he's more, um, uh, more Catholic than the Pope, I guess, insists that the real fatality rates for the, for COVID are higher than the mainstream tells us. And he insists that nobody has ever died from a vaccine. So maybe we'd start by just explain why he's wrong. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> Where'd you start? There's a lot of ground to cover right there. Um, you know, w- one thing to say is, is it, it's actually a weird statement to talk about uh, what somebody died of. And anybody who um, I, I find um, less trustworthy a conversation that makes um, very firm claims than one that is more exploratory. And what I mean by that is when a person dies, it's, it's very difficult most often to give one reason for why they died. Right. Uh, even a person, you know, shot with a gun. Uh, do you say they died from the gunshot or, did, or they died from, um, you know, losing too much blood, uh, you know, hypoxia, uh, you know, however, however, the actual, you know, or having an FBI agent smother them with a pillow, which is what happened to Martin Luther King Jr., according to William Pepper's investigation. Uh, I don't know that story. Um, that's uh, it's an interesting one. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but even on a very ordinary level, um, you know, a, a person uh, may be suffering uh, from cancer in a hospital bed and get COVID. And it may be that if they hadn't gotten COVID, they would have died a month later. Mm-hmm. But because they have COVID and their body is now stressed, um, they die a little bit sooner. And so, you know, how do you write that death down? Do you write that down as a cancer death, as a COVID death? And I think that vaccine deaths, um, you know, maybe the same thing, you know, when it comes to uh, language that can be easily manipulated, it allows people who want to um, frame and establish their own truth uh, to, to do so with language and just stand there as a rock and say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have any conversation about this. And yeah, that that's difficult. It's, it's not, um, 
it, it becomes almost a philosophical issue and it becomes an issue of wanting to control perception. And so would you agree with me, uh, as I wrote in an American Free Press article a year or more ago, actually, that all cause mortality statistics are probably more useful than, let's say, COVID mortality statistics for the reason you mentioned. And if, if there's been a huge jump in all cause mortality statistics, which it looks like there has been, then that suggests something is going on. And when we start eliminating various things, we find that probably COVID has played a large role in a large number of deaths, possibly as many as a million or more in the United States. Is that right or not? Um, I, uh, what was the last part that you said? I was actually- uh, okay, so, so, so if the all-cause mortality statistics uh, are right, at least according let's, to- Let's what- start there. Yeah. Let's start there. Um, I do like looking at the all-cause mortality statistics. Uh, it, you know, it gives you a picture of whether or not the system has changed, right? And if the system, it, it, it's possible that you have two different variables that are acting you know, opposite each other in a system and you have no change. Uh, in the overall system, but you do in certain aspects of the system. But most of the time, most of the time, if something comes along, you see a ch- that, that, that is substantial that you need to be paying attention to, you should see some sort of change in the system. Um, but most of all, what I, what I want to warn about is you should look sort of at the boundaries. You should look at what happens immediately when that variable comes along, Right. Yeah. Not, not just, you know, further out because it may be something decreases deaths, but then if you wind up with more suicides or more people who die because they don't get medical treatment or something like that, you know, suddenly all cause mortality could rise again. So you, you really want to look at, at when you have uh, established variables, you know, that have an impact in the system. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. And so can we apply that then to the debate over uh, all cause mortality? Uh, and the, you know, the, the, the claims range from that it has been exaggerated uh, to that, no, it's, it's actually showing something like 30% uh, excess mortality um, since COVID began at the beginning of 2020. Um, I, I saw there was uh, the discussion of uh, insurance in Indiana that oh, said, right. uh, maybe maybe it was uh, age ages ten to fifty nine. There was something like a forty percent increase in twenty twenty one. Yeah, in in all cause mortality uh, relative to the previous five years, or something like that. I, I may yeah. have the exact details wrong, um, and you know, and that becomes a tough discussion to break down. Now, my thought is okay. In twenty twenty one, the vaccines were the major variable change. Um, Though somebody, uh, I saw somebody writing, pointing out, oh, well, there's been an increase in suicides. And then that becomes a difficult issue philosophically. You know, can, do we even know how many of those suicides were the result of, you know, perhaps policy change that made people more depressed? Or were there a lot of people who were vaccine injured and then just did not want to handle it? Right. And, you know, somebody should be looking into that. Somebody should be, you know, uh, looking into the insurance data and telling us what the correlations are with that. Uh, but I think that everyone's scared to really open up the data books right now. Mm-hmm. You know, one person that I interview regularly who definitely isn't scared to look at these kinds of issues is Ron Unz, the publisher of the Unz Review. And he recently made a point that uh, is interesting to try to rebut. And that was that he says that these claims that there have been a very large number of vaccine deaths uh, we've heard them from uh, people like Steve Kirsch, who thinks that they're in the low hundreds of thousands and maybe a little high middle hundreds of thousands. And Ron went and looked 
at uh, deaths from heart disease, I guess, heart attacks. Uh, and what he found was that those heart-related deaths uh, went up in 2020, and then they went down uh, back to kind of normal in 2021. And so his what he said was, if, and especially, I guess what we have good data for is the first half of 2021. So he said, how could these vaccines be killing so many people if the main method of killing that they're killing people is, is through heart related circulatory type issues. And yet though that there's, that's not showing up. So therefore he says there really can't be this large number of uh, vaccine deaths. So why is he wrong? I'd have to see the data uh, specifically to talk about that. When I've seen uh, 2021 um, uh, cardiac data, things looked worse. Um, so I, I, you know, uh, this would be more interesting if I had, um, you know, prepared. Um, yeah, sorry, I, sh- I should have sent you Ron's article. But, uh, that, that. That's okay, <laughs> and and I, you know, I've I've barely had time um, uh, to to look beyond my own work lately. But two things: one is uh, even in the Pfizer Moderna reports, they reported zero point seven percent serious adverse events. When you're giving out four hundred million doses, um, we're talking about yeah, 3 million serious adverse events. Um, you know, what are the effects of those events? Uh, strangely, uh, people in places of authority don't even seem particularly interested in studying what's going on with those people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and strangely, uh, they, there seems to be uh, a wall put up at the ordinary streams of information, right? Um, Attorney Thomas Rents was... I don't know if you saw this. Um, he was, you know, in, in the Capitol the other day with a, a lot of the doctors and nurses and, and scientists who have worked on um, uh, COVID nineteen who believe that the vaccines are harmful and that and 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 that even if they're not particularly harmful, that that early treatment, you know, really works well. You know, why not use antivirals? That's isn't that what we always did before with viral outbreaks? But um, uh, he he pointed out that uh, the DoD had been sending this. Salus report to the CDC showing, you know, 10 times as many neurological issues in 2021, four times as many miscarriages, uh, four times as much cancer, at least among uh, the demographic um, that that report covered. And yeah, that the, the numbers were very large, like for the neurological issues, I know it was, it was like 800 something thousand versus like 82,000. And these are alarming numbers, right? We, mm-hmm. We, it, it does not feel at all to me like we're getting the whole story. Um, but uh, I'll mention, you know, I said earlier, um, I like to look at boundaries for data. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I did to help Steve Kirsch come up with the numbers that he came up with. Um, so I, I met Steve uh, uh, in a clubhouse chat room. It was either April or, or early May of 2021. And, um, you know, we got on the discussion of vaccine deaths and he was, debating, you know, the number 50,000 to me, he was like, you know, this is, this is really bad. This is, you know, there are clearly a lot of deaths out there. We're not paying attention to them. We have, you know, 5,000 deaths in VAERS. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, this is concerning to me. You know, I, I, I think that there, there are deaths, but I hadn't really done a deep dive. I said, I don't know if I, if I believe the number's that high. And he had some blog posts where somebody had done a little work, but I said, I, you know, I, I don't find that work convincing. And it turned out that the blog post, um, it turned out that there was a flaw in that analysis. And so we're you know, debating back and forth. And, and uh, maybe it was early June. Uh, I, 
I think, uh, sometime in June, I, I read, um, uh, I think it was a UK researcher who had looked into various reports. He looked at 250 of them and all of them had been classified as COVID deaths. So it, it, the researcher's name is Scott McLaughlin. So I was thinking, okay, wait, somebody's classifying, you know, systematically classifying all these vac- you know, post-vaccine deaths as COVID deaths. Well, I'd like to know how many of them are, you know, COVID deaths, how many might be vaccine deaths. And, and Scott McLaughlin's paper, he did a little bit. He, he, he looked at some of the reports and said, you know, this percentage of them, uh, and these were small percentage, this, this small percentage we could say was certainly COVID, right? But only 4.4% only 11 of the 250 uh, patients had COVID positive tests, right? So there couldn't have been a whole lot of COVID deaths in there. So I I started looking for evidence that um, vaccine deaths were counted as COVID deaths. And here's what I found. I looked uh, through the entire um, Our World and Data data set for every nation in Europe, uh, because I'd seen somebody say, oh, look, the case fatality rate in, in the UK went up right after the vaccinations roll out. So I, I looked and I said, okay, um, do we see that in all nations uh, you know, around Europe or in the West or something like that? And, and, and the first test I ran was all of Europe. And what I found was case, fatal- case fatality rates went up during the first 18 days after vaccination. And I'll, I'll tell you how I define that in a moment. During the first 18, 20 days, uh, went up 30%. Mm-hmm. With the sudden introduction of one new variable, and that that's where that's where I say look at the boundaries, look at look at the introduction of the variable. Thirty percent is huge, and here's and and this is during a time during the pandemic. I don't know if you watched case fatality rates. Like early on, it was like you know countries, some countries had like 30 percent, but you know yeah, like Italy yeah. around around Europe, it was you know seven eight percent, but it was falling, 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 falling as we found out you know other you know how many people were really testing positive or something like that. Um, and, and of course, you know we can debate the definition of cases, but that's another issue. But the point is, it was falling, 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 falling. Yeah, and, and then it started to kind of, you know, kind of level out. And then suddenly vaccines were introduced and boom, shoots up 30%. And that's substantial. So I said, um, what if that 30% represents excess deaths amongst the vaccinated, right? We talked about excess de- uh, deaths, like all cause mortality, but we, we could also cut out a subset, right? Amongst the vaccinated, um, oh, excuse me, not amongst the vaccinated, amongst the COVID uh uh, the COVID cases, excess deaths. Uh, that 30% would, re- would represent excess deaths amongst the subset of people with COVID. Mm-hmm. I think it's very possible as people were sort of, um, you know, de facto defined as COVID, you know, post-mortem, possibly not even given tests. Like, like McLaughlin said, you know, in the various reports, only 4.4% were COVID positive. So, um, I took that 30% and I said, well, what would this mean in terms of like deaths per million doses? And of course, they were vaccinating the elderly earlier and high-risk groups, mo- mostly the elderly during those first, you know, 18, 20 days. <clears throat> and um, and it was like a little over a thousand deaths per 1 million doses. And then I looked at the VAERS reports and said, okay, um, you know, according to like a demographic curve, if I correct for that, how many deaths per million doses do I get? And, and I, you know, I, I just allowed the range to be broad and said, looks like, you know, 200 to 500 deaths per million doses. So, um, you know, we applied that to, you know, the U S population at the time and, and, and <laughs> said, Oh, Oh, you know, goodness, there may be over a hundred thousand deaths at this point. And, um, 
you know, kept looking at the numbers later. Yeah, you know, I updated a little bit. I, I, I think that the number might be on the order of, you know, 150 to 250,000. That's uh, that's wild. Well, the, the de- attempted debunkings of this, uh, they say, among other things, they claim that this apparent rise of people dying after vaccination, uh, shortly after vaccination, is simply because these countries all happen to whip out their vaccination campaigns right at the moment that it's about to peak, kind of. Uh, so they claim it's all just a coincidence that it was just about to peak anyway. Uh but they do admit that the vaccines don't seem to be very effective. Uh, in reality, they seem to be negatively effective during that first month. Um, so, and they don't count those people as vaccinated. If you just got the vaccine, you're not. You're still counted as unvaccinated for the okay. first month. So let, let's start with this argument about the peak. Um, here's the way that I define case fatality rate to correct for that. Uh, I define case fatality rate as um, the ratio of deaths divided by cases lagged from 18 days earlier. And I did smooth both deaths and cases, you know, by a seven day moving average, but I had this lag. And and what this means is um, if there's like a peak in cases, that doesn't matter. We're just asking what proportion of those cases resulted in mortality, right? So it doesn't matter where you are on the up and down infection curve. You should get similar numbers so long as there's no change in the, you know, uh, clinical state of of what that means. And I don't see these rises in case fatality rates during other peaks. So interesting. Uh, Have you tried to, to see if uh, any, you know, the the fact checkers and so on are are out in force. Um, How have they responded to your analysis? Uh, For the most part, they've just dodged it. Um, you know, I've been open for conversation for a long time and, uh, Steve Kirsch in particular, he put a million dollar bounty on the conversation. Um, he put several different million dollar bounties on it. You know, um, one of them might've been like dis- disproved this. Another one might've been, um, for just academics to come to the table and have the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think there's been sort of like a little bit of nitpicking. I saw, uh, you know, an anonymous person critique on, on, uh, uh, medium.com and, you know, it wasn't even worth responding for the most part because um, their critique really didn't have much to do with with what I was talking about. Like it, it, they just they either misunderstood accidentally or intentionally the argument. So there was there was no interaction. Right. And when somebody is anonymous and there's no interaction with their argument and yours, where do you go with that? Right. Yeah. Well, part of the problem might be that, as I recall, the single uh, kind of go to article that Kirsch put out in his Substack about this. Uh, I think relied pretty heavily on VAERS data as it, it spent a fair amount of time talking about VAERS data and how you get the right multiplier for VAERS data. And I, it just strikes me that that, that is kind of a, uh, a loose uh, category. That is that there are all sorts of estimates for what the, you know, the underestimate is in the VAERS data, uh, what the multiplier should be to get real numbers. You know, when you have, right now I have over 20,000 reports of COVID vaccine deaths in, in VAERS uh, or deaths that followed the vaccine. And then people argue about, well, how underrepresentative is that? Or maybe it's exaggerated. The people like Gordon Duff say there's never been a death and this is all just uh, co- coincidental deaths. So I, I think maybe part of the problem was that your, what you just explained to us uh, didn't really jump out of Steve Kirsch's article, this, the VAERS argument was seemed to dominate it. Would you agree? Oh, I, um, 
I, I didn't look at his writing closely enough to think, you know, what dominated his article. Mm-hmm. Um, here's though. I, I have a little bit of a different perspective perhaps on the Vera's data than he does. Um, the, the actual multiplier may not be the point. Um, it, it, it becomes a complex discussion uh, really and truly by the rules of Vera's, uh anybody who died during 2021 who was vaccinated if they'd been back whether it was incidental or not right should have should be technically in a various report mm-hmm. so we should actually know exactly what the underreporting factor is right like you know let's say that um 3.2 million people died in 2021 in the u.s i don't know what the actual number is but that's probably not mm-hmm. far off now, let's say 3.2 million. Let's say that, you know, 1.9 million of those people were vaccinated. I don't know, you know, it were 2.3. Let's say 2.3 million of those people were vaccinated. Uh, then you should have 2.3 million people in mares. And, you know, so ultimately we can get the actual underreporting factor. It, here's where the underreporting factor kind of makes sense in terms of getting to a number that's more causal. The fact of the matter is, you would expect a VAERS report to be more likely linked to the vaccine than one that was not reported, even if it should have been technically by the rules. And the reason is, um, you know, a, a, let's say a doctor or a nurse who writes a VAERS report, it, if, if somebody gets, you know, leaves the hospital after getting a vaccine and gets hit by a car, um, it wouldn't shock me if that is far less, you know, let, let's take that case, clearly not a vaccine death. Right. Um, Unless the person regretted their choice and threw themselves in front of the bus, but that probably didn't happen. (laughs) Perhaps. Uh, But, but, you know, as close as possible to being saying, you know, clearly not a vaccine death. Um, What is the probability that that death is reported to VAERS? And then let's take a look at another case. Somebody gets a vaccine and four hours later, they're having a seizure. Um, You know, maybe they're, they have, you know, brain hemorrhage, uh, you know, blood hemorrhage, uh, or, or, or some sort of an immediate cardiac issue. And then that gets written up. What is, what is the percentage chance that gets written up to VAERS? This probability is much higher than this probability. Mm-hmm. Of course. And that gives us kind of a ratio between um, sort of, you might call them false positives and true positives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were to look at VAERS and say, there's some proportion of false, you know, true positives and false positives, and then how would that scale until you have exhausted the supply of true positives. There is some form of underreporting factor there that I think hasn't been correctly described yet. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a very good point. And that leads us to the larger point of why is the vaccine safety surveillance dependent on this VAERS system? And there's been a discussion about how there was actually a better system that was tried out a decade and a half or something ago and it started to show too many vaccine problems. So they uh, threw that out and uh, brought out this kind of useless uh, VAERS system. Now, who would do that and why would they do that? <laughs> um, they didn't bring out the VAERS system. The VAERS system was it's been just around, yeah. in place. It's been around. It's been in place for a while. I don't know if it's three decades or something. Uh, it's a terrible system. It is an awful, terrible system. It, um, you know, most doctors and nurses have never used it. Um, you know, didn't even know it existed. And, and this, this is a challenging issue too, because, you know, we, we don't even know what proportion of doctors and nurses knew that there was some sort of a mandate uh, to enter data into this system. Um, 
or whether there was anybody to hold their hand doing it. it you know, even if you know what you're doing, it already takes, you know, let's say 15 minutes to enter a VAERS report. That's if you know what you're doing. If you are uncomfortable with computers and data entry, I guarantee you, you are extra uncomfortable with VAERS. It is this old, clunky, you know, imagine um, using computers back in, you know, the early 1990s, um, where... Yeah, I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah, um, yeah, I am too. Uh, you know, where where sometimes you had like nice boxes of data entry and they worked just fine, but sometimes you had to open up some sort of a manual and read two pages before you you could even really you know make sense of of some system that you were using. Um, it, it's like that, except that it's being put in front of doctors and nurses who are used to you know whizzy apps that just work and are intuitive and easy. So. A lot of people just ignore it, really. I mean, that's the matter of fact, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most doctors and nurses didn't know VARES existed. Um, one, here was an interesting conversation that Steve brought me into. Uh, we had a Zoom meeting with, uh, with an epidemiologist who'd written an article about VARES. And we're in the meeting with this guy, and he admits that he doesn't know if he's ever seen a VARES report. Right. And and this is a guy with like all these, like he had like, you know, six or seven titles after his name. Right. He had all these degrees um, and he was a person who had been asked to write a VAERS article like, you know, on behalf of epidemiologists. (laughs) It's crazy. You know, um, people don't really understand this system. It's a terrible system. And and yeah, like you said, um, there have been there have actually been, uh, I think, two. Uh, or at least to sort of attempts at other people to redesign a system and replace it and money's been spent doing it and it's just been ignored. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why, why would somebody want a terrible system in place? Well, that is an interesting question. You know, we can all have our opinions on that one, but look at where we are. Well, it does allow people like Gordon Duff to assert that there have been no vaccine deaths at all. And it makes it hard to prove that he's wrong but on the other hand, there's certainly a lot of interesting anecdotal reports, uh, as well as the kind of statistical analysis that you did, you d- described earlier. Um, so uh, getting back to that question of the people designing these bad systems, uh, you've talked about uh, psychopathology. Uh, the, uh, I guess you, you were talking, what, what's the Eskimo word? Watiko is the native word I knew, but you, you oh, use this uh, Eskimo word. Kunlangida. Kunlangida, yeah, yeah. And uh, I wrote a, a piece 20 years ago that probably got more circulation than anything else I've ever written called Twilight of the Psychopaths, which was kind of a manifesto for exposing the psychopaths who rise to positions of power, you know, especially in you know, intelligence, military. Uh, intelligence is about lying. Uh, military is about killing. Uh, people who can lie like they breathe and can kill like they can squash a fly are obviously going to do well in some of these professions. Uh, and uh, so that explains a lot about why organized crime is uh, is so powerful and invisible in so many high places. So, what are what are your thoughts about the larger picture of the the role of this pathocracy in perhaps uh, creating COVID and then in causing a lot of these problems, including uh, bad vaccine surveillance and and then all the destruction of freedom around vaccines? Well, I have more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I strongly believe that we should be asking those questions and exploring them and uh, not getting, you know, bogged down in, in, um, you know, strange levels of name calling that, that seem inappropriate um, 
for serious people at a serious moment in time. Um, people should understand what a, what a psychopath is. And I know that that's a term that has been removed from the DSM. Um, I don't really care. You know, if, if, if what we want is to put a label um, just for the purpose of categorization of people who do not, um, do not have enough empathy for the broad body of human beings to be honest on a basic level, uh, especially when things matter, right? I mean, um, you know, forgive the world of sins of, of uh, you know, people's small sins, um, uh, trying to maneuver their daily lives. Uh, you know, we're, we're all imperfect in, in various ways, but, but psychopaths seem to not care about other people in general in making their decisions, right? Um, who are these people, you know, what, and what does that mean? I think it means something different for different people. <clears throat> you know, prisons have many psychopaths, right? Um, yeah, they're the failures. A, a low, yeah, the failures amongst the psychopaths, that, that's a good way to put it, or, or the brain damaged. Um, I know that some psychopaths, uh, some people become psychopathic after like, you know, frontal cortex injuries and, and maybe a lot of psychopaths are who they are because, you know, they were dropped as a baby or you know, who knows. Um but there are some high IQ uh, psychopaths and the, you know, we should be always paying a lot of attention to them and we should pay attention to our systems of in our institutions, our systems of governance and where, what it is that they are allowed to do. Are they, are they able to achieve escape velocity from anything like community governance? Mm-hmm. I think that that's happened. I think it happened at least hundreds of years ago, I think that like the Dutch East India company, the British East India company, um, you know, those, those added a new element to, um, to sort of the game theoretic dance of society. You know, Europe had uh, for the most part eliminated um, uh, slavery, right? Uh, Almost everywhere, if I understand correctly. Uh, And, you know, there was both religious and community, uh, resistance to the notion of slavery by that time, by the, the 1600s. And then you have suddenly you have these corporations in which people can get on boats and they are geographically independent of governance. <coughs> Pardon. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm thinking back to my understanding of the 1600s. I'm not, I don't really recall slavery being uh, pushed back that far then from my own readings, but um, uh, you can, uh, I, I, I had, I had thought that that wellspring of sort of anti-slavery sentiment was more associated with sort of the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. Uh, it happened, um, you know, for hundreds of years in different places in Europe, uh, prior to the 1600s, um, most everywhere it had happened by that point, if I understand correctly, I know that, um, mm-hmm. there were different movements, but some of them are, you know, like the year 1000 or closer to the year 1200. Uh, but it happened at different points for different nations in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but suddenly, uh, you know, uh, these these uh, corporations could send boats all over the world, and they would very commonly do things like find uh, a prince in Indonesia and turn him against his uh, a rival prince by offering him more power. You know, a simple prisoner's dilemma. Mm-hmm. You know, you help enslave, you know, a portion of your own people, and you have more power. Mm-hmm. And, and we're still doing that. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's the case. And I think that um, a lot of what we see in re- regime changes, controlled regime changes around the world are 
essentially that, right? It, when you have um, political power, you know, butting heads within a nation, um, it, it, it's it, unless one side is overwhelmingly superior, uh, it doesn't necessarily take a lot to push over the apple cart. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's why we see this dynamic in U.S. foreign policy where we support those uh, SOBs, but he's our SOB, like Somoza, Nicaragua, and so many other, so many other places. Uh, Saddam Hussein, for example, got to start as a CIA hitman, right? And, uh, but in sometimes there's a power dynamic within that society where somebody wants to stand up for that, that country or that society against the, uh, the predators from abroad actually gets a lot of support. So you end up with a conflict. And boy, we've seen a lot of people die in those kinds of conflicts. And if you think about it, the U.S. supported side is virtually always the bad one. It's always the SOB is our SOB. And the people fighting against us are the relative good guys over and over. And more often than most Americans understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, and I've not you know, done enough of a deep dive into every one of those circumstances to know, um, you know how often uh, U.S. forces are on the side of you know, the good guys in those situations. <clears throat> and that's often that's often even hard to determine. It, it, it's often confusing, especially because, um, it, yeah, I don't know how many um, you know, American you know, military um, uh, people working in the military, you know, or have known over the years. Um, you know, my opinion has, you- has been that um, they are generally more honest, generally mm-hmm. good people, generally um, higher virtue than than the average citizen. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I've liked most of the people that I've known in the military. Uh, military does attract a share of, uh, of psychopaths or people who like to hurt mm-hmm. others for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it, it becomes hard for the average American to judge that wonderful neighbor they have who is a corporal, you know, in, in the U.S. Army, perhaps. Um, as somebody who is going out and uh, hurting people with, you know, whether it's in the Middle East or some other conflict, um, because because it's the good guy next door who would always have have uh, helped you with any favor or, you know, uh, protected you if you were in danger or something like that. But the leadership at top makes those decisions, right? Mm-hmm. What are yeah, and that's where the problem is. Yeah. And it's not always even clear what the connections are between perhaps, you know, someone that mm-hmm. the CIA hires and... American interests. And there have been a lot of uh, indications that there's some kind of uh, systemic corruption at the top of the military and, and other bureaucracies. Uh, just for a few data points, uh, the career of Colonel Michael Aquino uh, is quite interesting and illuminating. I was in San Francisco when he was had a rivalry with, with the leader of the Church of Satan, a certain Anton LaVey. And uh, Aquino was basically kicked out of the Church of Satan for being too evil he was then prosecuted for this horrific child abuse at the Presidio military base. And it sure, sure appeared that he was uh, guilty. Uh, somehow he beat the rap. And he ended up, I believe, being promoted as head of all U.S. military psychological warfare operations, uh, which is a kind of interesting career trajectory. Uh, and then we have the testimony of Kay Griggs, the military wife who described the kind of satanic uh, uh, sex uh, slavery uh, types at the top of the military that uh, that dealt with, you know, that basically trafficked her and uh, her husband being part of that. Uh, and then we have the Franklin scandal. I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, that was something that came out of Nebraska in the 80s. And basically what we learned from that was that these pedophile rings 
control the Nebraska State Police and Judiciary, the Nebraska newspapers, the national newspapers, CIA and the FBI. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, Epstein scandal, once again, is this this phenomenon sort of you know coming to the surface. So given, given this and many other data points we could point to, it sure seems that there's some sort of recruitment system for people at the top of the pyramid that involves perhaps blackmail material and involves conditioning these people to not have a conscience anymore. Uh, have, would you agree with that analysis or am I uh, going too far? <laughs> um, people, so once the, once the Kunlingita escape the confines of governance, um, all, you know, essentially anything goes, essentially they have engineered their own anarchy, but it, it's an asymmetric anarchy, right? Um, you know, suddenly everyone else has to obey a set of laws and the Kunlingita may have a lot of control over those laws. So if there are people who would rise to the top, who would be willing to do such things, and we know that there are people in the world who, you know, exploit, um, who, who traffic children or exploit children or ex- exploit, you know, all people. Um, so, yeah, and, and I've, I've read a bit about the, um, the uh, Nebraska, the Franklin uh, scandal, um, and that one even involved uh, a future U.S. president, uh, at least according to court testimony, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, and and I believe a yeah was it Bush in the White House? Uh, they uh, right trafficked children, taken on midnight tours of of the White House, and and then I think VP Bush was involved supposedly. Yeah, that was the claim, at least. So yeah. you know, it, it's the type of thing that we should certainly know more about. More recently, perhaps that a lot of people can um, wrap their minds around. We had uh, Dennis Hastert. Uh, who was he speaker of the house? Was he yeah, I think so. three, three positions removed from being president mm-hmm. in a disaster um, who had been a, if I, if I understand the story correctly, he was a high school wrestling coach who molested, you know, rape students, mm-hmm. his own, you know, uh, yeah. wrestlers perhaps. Um, and somebody, I, I, you know, I don't know how you make the, the quick leap from that to, you know, fast tracking through, the house to become speaker, but it, you know, that's the type of situation that the American people should demand um, serious investigations of. And supposedly the FBI had a lot of material on him, you know, while he was just in these positions, somebody like that can be very easily compromised. Well, who could compromise them? Well, perhaps the intelligence agencies have the most information on somebody like that. So perhaps they're the most responsible or perhaps even they, you know, perhaps there's some Kunlingita there who control those levers. Mm-hmm. So it, it's definitely something that we should be thinking about and worrying about. And, and I see it as a fundamental problem of society building. You know, if, mm-hmm. if we are facing major issues, we seem to be facing some pretty major issues in how to organize, you know, how to understand even where, where we are in terms of governance as a society and how to move forward. Uh, anybody who wants um, a nice society where we have enough balance that you can just go about your life and enjoy your freedoms. So long as, you know, uh, you may get a slap on the wrist when you do a bad thing here or there and so be it. Um, But I think most people want the nice life where they, they enjoy the people in their neighborhood. And we don't, we don't have that as much anymore. What happened? We, we need to figure out that relationship between uh, these power dynamics and also you know, how to repair the balance of civilization. Mm-hmm. What, what would a program for repairing the balance of civilization look like? I mean, where would we even start? 
I've thought I've thought a fair bit about that. I think that the most likely answer, to be honest, is an economic collapse. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, just as the USSR. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that I wish for X, Y, or Z. I, I just I simply think it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, anytime you abuse your economic system um, to a certain point, that eventually it breaks down. When we had the uh, 2007 mortgage bond crisis, uh, we we had a moment at the Suez Canal where ships weren't being weren't being ferried through, uh, walked through the canals, and the reason is because one bank would stop taking a letter of credit from another because they were afraid of that level of counterparty risk, and you know these are big money transactions, so they they would have blown up you know smaller banks or or you know severely hurt. Uh, even larger banks to have, you know, the entire boats of, of goods and products and whatever, um, you know, suddenly the liability to be on them. <clears throat> so you know, when you see that kind of breakdown in the banking system, um, you know, you're on the precipice and we're seeing that. I mean, we, we saw that in the mortgage bond crisis and the Fed said, okay, we're going to swap bonds for dollars, money for money right? It, it, it wasn't what people thought it was, but it did allay people's fears in the system, right? It was, it was almost a sleight of hand. It wasn't, even, it wasn't that they printed the money, it was that they'd already printed the money, but that the Fed was standing in and, and stamping the money a little bit more officially as dollars. You know, it, it, it was very weird, but it worked and, and, and got everything going. Um, so, you know, um, more recently, October of 2019, the uh, mortgage, the um, uh, repo market um, started to break down. And that's where <clears throat> a bank, which may need dollars overnight, just liquidity for their operations, might offer up bonds that they hold for you know overnight collateral. And these bonds are considered to be risk-free. They're as good as money. This is our M1 money supply, right? Um, they're as good as money. And usually it's a very low interest rate that you pay when you have the best collateral possible in the world. And this, you know, this fraction of 1% interest rate suddenly skyrocketed to nearly 10%. Mm-hmm. You know, there were banks that were not willing to lend out money for an 8% interest rate that is collateralized. And you know, th- this happened because trust is breaking down bonds are collateralized and then re-collateralized and then re-collateralized again, right? I think the rehypothecation rate of the average bond is around three, uh, maybe higher now. Uh, but the treasury stepped in and put a backstop on that, the entire repo operation that I believe has climbed to about a trillion and a half dollars. And the entire world economy is really depending on this backstop, which is simply going to have to grow and grow and grow and grow. You know, it's now it's now kind of like its own national debt, you know, one and a half trillion, that's already 5% of the national debt. You know, where's it going to be in three years, four years, five years? No, it, it, it's breaking down. So I, I think it's going to be an academic matter at some point. Um, most people don't, don't, you know, really understand the dollar system that well, but it's a system where it really benefits the people at the top who can print the dollar. When they print the dollar, the first people who get to spend new dollars, let's say you, Let's say there's a certain number of dollars and you add 10%, right? The people who get to spend that 10% of the new dollars first, in, in essence, they, they haven't created any new value. They just get to spend it first. So, you know, they soak up, you know, 9% of all the goods and services in the world. Mm-hmm. And then everybody else, 
you know, ultimately is paying for that. There, there are kind of ripple effects that happen, but the people on the outer edges of the empire, they pay the most, they get taxed heavily. Those people are, you know, more in places like Southeast Asia, China, South America. Those are the people who are paying the most for the use of the dollar system, perhaps also people in the Middle East or Africa. Even in the U.S. now, um, the number of people who are actually benefiting from that system has become more and more and more and more centralized. And this is part of the rift with the middle class and the upper middle class. And and I think the upper middle class is even separating from a more elite class than that now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's all this turmoil about that. But um, ultimately, you have to think about that ripple effect. Um, And um, uh, there's a name for it. And I'm not coming up with the name at the moment, but... Uh, sounded like you wanted to interject. Well, yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. It occurred to me quite a while back that if you want to spend your time doing a kind of socio-political manipulation of people and, and grab power through that, you need free money to do it, really, right? Because if you don't have free money, you have to actually produce something of value for other people, and that's what you end up spending most of your time at. But right. if you have a whole pile of free money, uh, you can play with that to create systems of control. So as you say, the people that get the first dibs on that uh, free money that they create when they create money out of nothing, that's probably the biggest single source of that free money that can be used to consolidate power. But there are some others as well. The drug trade, which has such incredibly high markups that uh, drug money becomes a kind of free money. And uh, there there are maybe a few others as well. So uh, therefore, if we want to reform things intelligently, maybe the first thing we need to do is fix the currency system, have a transparent public currency system, as people like Ellen Brown uh, argue for. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we, we desperately need to fix the currency system. Um, we need it to be non-nationalized. Uh, so long as it's tied to one nation, uh, the Kunlun Gita will focus themselves on controlling that one nation as well as possible. I personally hope that Bitcoin succeeds. Um, you know, it, its design includes uh, a solution to the Byzantine generals problem. So long as we are able to manage the distribution of control of the mining machines, um, and it, it would take a whole lot, I think, to to you know overcome that. But but uh, I know a couple of Bitcoin core developers, and they still feel like there's a mountain of work in front of them. So. Oh, and what about the problem of the energy intensive nature of Bitcoin mining? Is is that something that can be easily overcome or not? Um, I actually think that that's sort of a faux problem. And here's the reason why. Um, ultimately, what you're paying for is security. When you think about what the security is for the U.S. dollar, well, it's the entire U.S. military, right? All, all, the, the energy that is expended for the security of our monetary system is so enormous that people can't fathom how much of our governance goes into that. And we're talking about not just use of energy, but but enormous amounts of, of all of our externalities, pollution, you know, chemicals in the oceans, you know, um, all the but all the bombs we make, all the risks that we take uh, according to weapons that could be turned against us or, um, or, or they could harm people that we don't want to be harmed. Um, there's, there's so many costs there. But the energy costs just associated with our military alone are huge. If people aren't taking that into account, they're not really doing, you know, a full risk, you know, risk, uh, uh, sorry, um, 
uh, they're not doing a full net benefit, benefit. analysis, yeah. risk, yeah. yeah, risk benefit analysis. So, yeah. um, and, and yeah, every bank in the world uses energy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Energy is used all day long. You know, right now, Bitcoin is, it's a tiny fraction of 1% of the energy use of the world. And uh, even if it grows to dominate, it's, it's not going to be nearly what the military is used. <laughs> Bitcoin is more a replacement for military mm-hmm. than anything else. Wow. That's, that's a fascinating perspective. Uh, I suppose the rejoinder from the people, the anti-Bitcoin side would, would probably be something like, uh, you know, you're not going to solve the problem of, uh, of human greed and corruption and, uh, and, and the psychopaths necessarily just by substituting this new kind of currency that can itself then be, you know, hoarded and used. I suppose it, it does solve part of the problem, though, as, as you say, that the currency creation is more decentralized through the mining apparatus. So maybe that could be part of the solution. <laughs> so, well, right. yeah. and it, it may be that the solving the problem of the psychopaths, the Kundalini Gita, it may just be a matter of reining them in long enough for community to heal and once again become, um, you know, governable. If, if there are a handful, if 1% of people who pop out of each community are psychopaths, then communities uh, need to look at what happened in history in the last few hundred years recognize how important that is and understand that part of the job as as a community is to watch for who those people might be. That is part of the governance of a community and local leaders will have to um, take that, you know, upon themselves and their shoulders um, and recreate ordinary community discipline. That's a great uh, idea. And that is kind of what I proposed in the Twilight of the Psychopaths article was that surveilling and identifying psychopaths and getting hip to their tricks would be a huge part of the solution. However, we're, we're talking at a time in history when you know, half the population, more or less, mm-hmm. thinks that Trump, the embodiment of the uh, sociopathic narcissist, I mean, you couldn't come up with a better uh, made-for-TV kind of you know, reality show narcissist with some sociopathic tendencies than Trump. I mean, he's, he's, he's so honest about them, he's, he's refreshing. Uh, but then the, uh, the other side doesn't really look much better. Maybe they conceal it a little better. Uh, it seems that we're maybe not making too much progress there, um, aside from some you know, refreshing trends like people like Ron mm. Paul and uh, Bernie Sanders and RFK Jr., who seem like they're still kind of human, even though they're politicians, uh, have done okay. But I don't know. What, what do you think? Uh, are we going to make progress? And how will we identify it? Yeah, it's interesting. For the most part, the Kunlingita have chosen the Democratic Party as a party of sort of um, eliteness, ascending, ascending power. <clears throat> I've actually wondered if um, Trump was sort of a stand-in mm-hmm. to saddle the other side with a leader that was, that was actually them in some sense, right? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Maybe, maybe in a direct sense, mm-hmm. but also possibly in an indirect sense. You know, the moment he wanted to run, perhaps, um, you know, th- those who were in opposition to him were ready to, um, use him and cast his negative qualities as well as possible to sort of project a movie onto the screen. One of those things I think is true. Either um, either he was used um, to to create an image, or or he was simply a puppet. Mm-hmm. It, it is odd how how we'd seen this upsurge of populism that was kind of transcending the left and right boundaries. Uh, and it was latching on to these unusually human and non-psychopathic people like uh, like Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders. And then suddenly along comes Trump 
the uh, you know cartoon psychopath or at least narcissist uh, <laughs> who suddenly changes the whole landscape and things have gotten so insanely polarized. I, I'm wondering how we come out the other end of this polarization. Um, you know, like I said, I, I think that it'll happen by economic collapse. I, I think that that a war um, would be <clears throat> extraordinarily difficult, and even it would probably end at at the economic limit, right? Um, I'm I'm not a big fan of um, wars of violence, especially when uh, when there is the opportunity to sit back and be virtuous and watch uh, watch evil eat itself. Mm-hmm. And when, <laughs> yeah. when when evil runs out of slack on the economic side, that's what happens. You know, people begin to fight for the crumbs. Um, people, you know, you, you do have to to watch them. You do have to dodge, you know, where they reach as they become desperate. But um, I think we're already seeing some infighting within the system that is indicative of people recognizing that the pie isn't necessarily going to grow again. Okay, well, I wonder if COVID coming along right after this uh, crisis in the uh, interbank lending you mentioned in October of 2019 is purely coincidental. And then I also wonder about whether the COVID pandemic could have been unleashed as a a U.S. bioattack on China and Iran on behalf, of course, of these uh, psychopathic international banking cabal types or whoever's at the top of the power pyramid here. I don't know if you've read Ron Unzo's ebook on this. I would highly recommend that. He makes a pretty good case that that's at least part of the story. Uh, And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about COVID as biowar and whether we could even be moving into an era of endemic biowar? Yeah, um, you know, lately... uh other than five days that I took off to go to a convention recently, I've been working 14 or 15 hours a day. So I've not had the chance to, to read that yet, but um, I, I think that, that this, to the, the extent that this could be an engineered virus, I, actually, I think it's an engineered set of viruses, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that the targets of these viruses are very many. Yeah. Your, your Omicron series, which is your, your latest series gets <clears throat> into this. It's really good stuff. Yeah, and and you know I, I I don't have conclusions. I have a lot of hypotheses, but um, it, it it certainly looks like Omicron might have been the first you know actual SARS CoV virus you know circulating in this recent family of viruses, um, and I think that it could have been released maybe in 2017. Uh, you know who, who are the targets? What was the goal? I think that uh, the people with the most control. Um, are able to grab more control during almost every shakeup, right? After the mortgage bond crisis, uh, the people who, you know, the most elite, I don't remember if it was 1% or 0.1%, but um, like their wealth grew by like 50% just as a proportion of the pie. And that doesn't even include other growth. This is the shock doctrine scenario. Um, Yeah. And um, yeah, shock, uh, yeah, exogenous shocks and, and yeah, they're able to benefit it. And especially if they know ahead of time, right. To the extent that they understand the game. And I do think that, that, uh, a good portion of the very, very elite, I mean, I was having conversations about what would eventually be the mortgage bond crisis all the way back in 1998. You know, when I first you know stepped into wall street, that, that conversation was immediate, right. Uh, even before I accepted the job, the day of the interview, that conversation was, going on. <laughs> wow. um, so, you know, th- those people do have a lot of opportunity to take advantage. Um, it, you know, coronavirus really shook up the world. These engineered, you know, what I think are engineered viruses shook up the world. Was was that uh, play on Iran or China? I actually, 
I, 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 my model of China is that China is not as big a juggernaut as most people think. And I believe that uh, the communist countries were actually themselves propped up by Wall Street. Um, you know, we know that Wall Street helped fund the Bolshevik Revolution, for instance. Uh, Mao took money through uh, U.S. diplomats during World War II, even prior to, you know, sort of final ascendance uh, above Chiang Kai-shek. Then he was taking money from cigarette companies. I, I, I worry that, that there are facades all over the world that have disguised the uh, growth of something like one world governance mm. for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. China, it, most of, you know, people talk about how big China's economy is. It's not the way to judge things. <clears throat> the way to judge things is who controls more bleeding, you know, cutting edge or bleeding edge technology, because those technologies are far more profitable. You can think of Peter Thiel's zero to one along those lines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most of what China employs are actually the technologies of the past and the ones with the highest rates of externality. So they are in a, they're selling out their environment to be a low profit port of manufacture. And that's the largest sets of pieces of their economy. It doesn't really look good. It's well, they're, they're trying to rev it up a few notches, I think, uh, but we'll see where, where they go so far. They, they haven't, uh, you know, the people who've predicted uh, doom and gloom for China, you know, follow the path of Japan and, and stop growing have, have all been wrong, but who knows uh, where the, what the future will bring. Well, I think we've hit the end of this hour, but it's too bad because I would love to talk for another hour or two with you, Matthew Crawford. Unfortunately, no less radio wants a one hour show. So that's what we're going to send them. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Keep up the great work at the Rounding the Earth blog. Uh, anybody who likes my Substack should probably also subscribe to yours. Uh, just search for Rounding the Earth at Substack. And uh, God bless. Keep up the fantastic work. And I do hope to talk again. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye bye. 